0: For over 70 years, Michael Murphy has witnessed and shaped the human potential movement. Michael's the founder of the famed Esalen Institute, and he helped our Western culture recognize that we all have psychological potentials far beyond our conventional capacities. He watched the migration of Eastern traditions and meditations into the West and the rediscovery of our own Western contemplative practices. He saw the ups and downs of the psychedelic movement and the birth of countless new psychotherapies and somatic therapies. Now at 92, he surveys this extraordinary history and panorama and draws lessons for us all. Here is a unique perspective on human potentials, practices, and their implications.
1: Welcome to Deep Transformation, self, society, spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers contemplatives, and activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution.
2: I'm Roger Walsh and our co-host is John Dupuy. Today we have a guest who Whether you've even heard of his name, and you probably have, your life has probably been touched and changed by it. Mine certainly has, John certainly has, and millions of others certainly have. Michael Murphy has been a cultural pioneer and an explorer and wayshower in the discoveries, the exploration of human nature and potential, uh, of cultural innovation, and even of diplomacy. Michael's, I'm delighted to say, being a long-term friend and inspiration for me. I've been very privileged to have him as a a friend and fellow explorer for many, many years. And I have benefited in numerous ways from our our friendship. And Michael has an extraordinary background. He went into pre-med at Stanford some 60 years ago over 60 years ago, actually, and accidentally walked into a class on comparative religion and walked out a changed man. And out of that, he started doing practices such as meditation way before it was popular and exploring a variety of other practices. And as a result of that, he decided to change his career. He went into psychology and he served uh, after a stint in the, in the army as a psychologist, he came back to Stanford for a graduate career, but left Stanford like a number of other cre- very creative people, but uh, not to found a company yet, but actually to go into an ashram and to do intensive spiritual practice for the better part of a couple of years. Michael subsequently came back and founded the organization and Institute of Esalen the pioneering institute where much of the human potential movement has been born and transformed and gone through successive phases as Michael in his visionary way has pioneered a whole slew of different approaches and practices and understandings of who we are as human beings and what we can be. Michael has played many roles in addition to founding ESLIN and Organizing and directing it, he for some time. He subsequently stepped back and is now on the board and the main visionary of Eslan. But he's also an author who's written, I frankly have lost count, I think it's between 10 and 12 books, and been the inspiration for dozens more. He's been the pioneer of a think tank. He has created integral transformative practice, a distillation of best and most powerful practices that he and 60 years of exploration have discovered. Discovered. He synthesized those into a, a full-life discipline for becoming the fullest and best human beings we can possibly become. He's created several institutes and 5013C organizations to get ideas and practices out into the world. He's also played a key role in the Soviet-American program, now the Russian-American program, which pioneered citizen diplomacy. So as you can see, Michael has played many roles. He's pioneered a variety of disciplines. He's instituted new ways of thinking, and he's really been a cultural creative in the best sense of that word, and this just touches on some of the many aspects of who Michael is and what he's done for us and our culture. So, Michael, it is just a delight to have you with us and to have the opportunity of exploring the many, many creative contributions you've made and the pioneering ideas you've had and uh, and the ones you're still coming up with. So, welcome.
3: Uh, thank you, dear friend. <laughs> <laughs> You're a generous fellow, I must say. Um, <laughs> thank you very much. And uh, John, good to be here with you, too. Uh, Wonderful. So For this is my, my idea of a good time. So lots we could talk about. So, Roger, how would you like to start? Because I imagine a number of your viewers might be uh, curious about Esalen, so we could be of service in dispelling some of the rumors that go around. (laughs) That would be great, yeah. Set the record straight, so we could start with that. Fine. Okay, well, good. Well, the pandemic, if those who read Tolkien, in the scouring of the Shire, when the, the Shire, the gathering of the hobbits, was purged, well, Esalen's had a scouring of the Shire, Uh, maybe 140 people working to maintain it, 120 we had to let go. It was not just the pandemic, but it was uh, road closures and fires and et cetera, because we're right there on the edge of California that's always shaking, sliding, or burning. So there we sit. We've been through these things before, but never this big. So we've come out of it with a, a much more streamlined operation so with all the pain there have been blessings you know my pal george leonard liked to say take the hit as a gift so we're doing that so we are probably never going to have as many people on that land as before and that's a good thing we've gotten too crowded and we do have a commitment to to ecological endeavors and concerns so we're going to be better to the land it will be smaller one of the things that we are intent to do is to have a deeper marriage of the two parts of Esalen. For those of you who are listening who might know about this, that we have our public programming, which is open to the world generally, which really provides the main income stream for us. We're a 5-1-C-3, but uh, we do have a fundraising too, and we people have been generous to us. But the other side is what we currently call our Center for Theory and Research. And these are programs of theoretical exploration, some research, particularly research projects that we've instigated elsewhere. Not all our programs are there in Big Sur for the Center for Theory and Research. But, God, all over uh, the U.S. and Russia, Europe, uh, everywhere, Russia's, uh, our activities have been a little more widespread than the media has ever Appreciated. So, okay, these two worlds, we're working now for a little closer marriage between them. We can talk about this as we go along here. Because what Esselen is up to, what it's always been up to, why I started it with Dick Price, is with a worldview that is very deeply held, that I have held and I've been true to now since I walked into that class you mentioned, Roger, you know, Frederick Spiegelberg at Stanford and uh, completely by mistake and i heard him silence 600 restless stanford students by just coming on the stage and his carriage his presence and then and i promise you this is the way it worked one word brahman brahman well i'd been an altar boy in the episcopal church i i was starting to move away from whatever tight allegiance I had to uh, the Christian worldview, but that one word. And then in that class, he ended with another word, Atman. Atman is Brahman. So those of you who know Indian philosophy, Atman, the, the deepest subjectivity of the world, of us, the I behind all our eyes, is one with Brahman which is the omnipresent reality, which is everything. So this got to me, and walking back to my fraternity after this first lecture, caught crosswise and out of the blue, you know, a sentence started running through my mind. My subliminal mind had been sprung into action. It just said, you'll never be the same. You'll never be the same. And honest to God, that's the way it came to me. So I, anyway, it started a... The voyage that has lasted ever since and is with everything else I heard from Frederick Spiegel then and was introduced to. And then in my second two years at Stanford, I was a sophomore when this happened. The second two years at Stanford, I managed to shock my parents and family greatly by becoming, in their eyes, something that is about the worst thing I could be, a yogi. And where I grew up in Salinas, California, you know, it's a tough town of growers and a big rodeo there. And if you read John Steinbeck, I mean, Grapes of Wrath, I mean, a yogi. And as my father said, son, you know, anything else you could have been, I don't care what you want. If you want to be a gardener, man, and, and I can honor that. But a yogi, that, <laughs> it's worse than being something from Mars. It's an abyss of disgustingness that... Anyway, but as time went on, he, he and my family became our greatest supporters. I mean, it was, it was, I forced a, a kind of, at least a cognitive enlightenment on him. I mean, but he was fantastic. He was a lawyer and et cetera. So anyway, that worldview that came out of that initial thing, and I, just to say a few words about it, because we can circle back to it, if there was a one anchoring philosopher that I would name who anchored these things I learned in that course of comparative religions, it would be Sri Aurobindo, the great Indian independence leader and thinker educated in England, led the most radical wing of the Indian independence movement, more radical, say, than Gandhi. He was in jail, then developed into a, well, a very deeply realized contemplative, a mystic And he wrote from his experiences, his mystical experiences. And to sum up his worldview, and Roger, of course, God, you've contributed to this through the years in all your various ways. When asked to name it, the lineage, as I was and have always been, what is your lineage? I have given it various names, but to me, the one that has lasted the longest is simply to call it evolutionary panentheism, the doctrine that... The divine is transcendent to the world and imminent in the world. It's panentheistic as, you know, a distinction from pantheism, which says this, the world disclosed to us mainly through the five senses or whatever your current count of the physical senses happen to be. Some people say the seven senses or it's always changing, but that's pantheism. Theism, you know, in the Judeo-Christian tradition is God's up there, we're down here. This world is the product first of creation, then the fall. So we're separated from from the divine. Or in Indian thought, we are separated by samsara, the world which is maya, etc. I mean, so anyway, it's panentheism is embracing the whole. And then necessarily it has to be evolutionary because the world is evolving. That's a fact. It's a set of facts. Theories of evolution come and go. Some of them stay. We're learning more and more about it. We still don't know an awful, awful lot about it, but it is also a fact. It's a set of theories, but evolution is a fact. Now, we could talk about this a little later, but in any case, that worldview that, for me, originally came out of Aurebend, who then was supplemented by all sorts of other streams and I've written books about this. We can talk about it. But that led me to start Esalen and later ITP, Integral Transformative Practice. And it led to, as Roger just said, projects for a field among them, a 50-year now, if you can believe it, a 50-year effort to help out on the Russian-American front. And we can come back to that one, too. And then, Finally, I have to mention that it led me into the world of sport in a way I never would have imagined when I was a kid. I was always a sport fan, but my first book, and I didn't write really in a sustained way till I was 40. So I hadn't thought of myself as a writer, but the first book I wrote, Golf *From the Kingdom, which has now been in continuous print for 50 years, Has opened window into window into some of the main things I'd like to talk about today. So, just to say that Esalen, then, has, I believe, though it has had its ups and downs and ins and outs, has remained true to this anchoring vision, evolutionary panentheism. But if one has a lot of room to move, And there are various, let's put it, kinds of evolutionary panentheism that have emerged. Different flavors of it. Teilhard de Chardin would give you a Catholic version. Whitehead, Alfred North Whitehead would give you a modern speculative philosophy anchored in that. Henri Bergson, who won a Nobel Prize in large part for his writings on creative evolution, would be a member of that. So it's been a a worldview that arguably is still in process of capturing the world's imagination, not by any grand religious procession, but just coming up through the floorboards, as it were, out from the corners of life, from the margins. And for most people, I would say it has not been given a name, it has not been shepherded along, But it's for anybody who just pays attention to the most basic things in life is aware that our understandings of evolution have evolved and are evolving. And there are all sorts of ideas tossed around all the time. The Hubble telescope, now we have the Webb telescope. They're probing back into when this was born, this cosmos we inhabit. and In other words, it's it's in play all the time, on the margins, coming up to face us until we come to terms with it. But alongside this is this worldwide confrontation with the eternal philosophic and spiritual questions, particularly with the religions having lost their hold on opinion elites all over the world, starting, you know, we can, again, this is a subject we could argue about, but certainly I think, I think most thinking people think that in many ways we live between the death of the old gods and the birth of the new gods. I mean, who said that, you know, quite a while ago, whether it was Heidegger or somebody. So, okay, in this, I would say, crisis of belief and shaking the world. If the world were an apple tree, it is being shaken very hard, and a lot of apples are falling off the tree. And conflicts now are appearing and new ideas are appearing that have made for all sorts of conflicts. And now humankind has suffered from conflict from its birth, certainly after there were city-states and in the Neolithic. Anyway, wars and fights and combats, combats of ideas have always been with us. But it's taken on some new shapes today. But alongside of that is it has prompted a certain number of people I don't think any gang getting together in a room could come up with the same number of people. Some will say thousands of people. A few would say millions. I have friends who would say, oh, maybe 20 or 30. Very, um, (laughs) elitist friends who, they're 20 or 30, who really, so you could argue about that. Who's touched? How many are touched? How they're touched? But in any case, games on. And it's brought, I believe, into more and more immediate focus by modern media so that we're aware to an incredibly stronger, brighter degree than it has been in the past. We rub up against more divergences, divergencies today, I believe, than ever before. I and Dick Price started Eselin 60 years ago. I wandered into Frederick Spiegelberg's class 72 years ago. So I've had a chance to observe the unfoldment of this present situation. And okay, perhaps I took a little too long there, Roger. But anyway, that just sets the stage for some of the things I want to talk about starting with Esalen. Unless you want to say something.
2: Well, no. Sounds like you want to you want to bring that to a completion of some kind, and and that'd be great. And I I want to just take a moment at some stage to just point to some of the many things you've said. So you've you've said a lot, and I just like to yeah. <laughs> like to distill some of that. So <laughs> we've got enough to keep us there going for days. <laughs> okay. Uh. Well, first first off, I I want to distill a little because there's so much in there. First off. It's beautiful to have a sense of the context, which is the conceptual context or the vision which has guided your life and your work and ESLIN and integral transformative practice. In fact, pretty much everything you've done and the missions you've yeah. you've undertaken. And that is this evolutionary panentheism. It's and it's a beautiful, all-encompassing perspective. It's a it's a recognition that Our lives, this world, everything we do are an aspect of the divine. So it sacralizes everything, which is extraordinary. And it acknowledges that this sacred is evolving and discovering itself. And you you have taken as your life's work the facilitating the recognition of this sacred evolutionary context and supporting it. And there's a re- you didn't explicitly say this, but there's been a recognition in all your work and the whether it be the theoretical, the philosophy, the practical, the practices, that we are both instruments of the divine yeah. and the means by which it fulfills or or expresses itself and comes to comes to expresses further potentials. And so in a way, there's this beautiful way in which all your work with the human potential movement has been both an expression of and a recognition that this is divine work. And it sacralizes everything. It's just it's so beautiful.
3: Well beautifully said I mean amen. Amen. Gee, if we were a jazz band, wow, it's I drew (laughs) it. but riff like Louie and you came in with the piano. I mean it was beautiful. I yeah, absolutely. Well said. So okay, right down to now and today. The question I would suppose is the most insistent question I have through thick and thin, because wow, in my life, Roger, there have been wins and there've been a lot of losses. There have been ups and there have been downs. At times, I've grown discouraged, not about, I really have been blessed with never having any loss of faith in the big vision. I mean, that's just I've been, it's, I just have to confess, it's been out of the question for me. So that's never been shaken. But my particular activities, uh, starting with, should we keep going to Desalin? That question has come up on various occasions. Because, you know, on the face of it, it's a rotten business model to, <laughs> to take this gorgeous property into a non-profit thing. My father know, knew that being yogi was weird and seemingly awful. And I've confirmed that on the business front.
2: <laughs> and bless you for doing so.
3: Well, I, I totally <laughs> succeeded in being a non-profit guy. anyway so at various points you know there was an option well we'll sell the property etc etc whatever but i keep coming back and my most insistent question is how best to serve now for example today we don't need to do what we did in the 60s a lot of what we brought forth which was in the realm of practice we became a display of countless practices that were unfamiliar to certainly to Americans and to Europeans. And we, uh, for example, we helped, some people would say we were the number one place brokering the emergence of what today is called somatics. Don Johnson, who been important to Eslin and you could almost call the American dean of somatics, which includes such things as rolfing, sensory awareness, and these various other practices that have emerged by the dozens, by the way, by the dozens, and uh, did not have a name when Esalen started, but came to be called somatics. Tom Hanna, who was a philosopher, gave it a name. It caught on, and in Europe, it often, probably, usually flies under a different flag, somatopsychology, somatic psychology. But they do have conventions, and they will call on Don Johnson to be the primary spokesman for American somatics. Okay, that field, which in relation to the great history of transformative practice, let's say, take it way back in Indian culture, let's say if you date it back into shamanism even, is a, a new way, as it's emerged, to reconstitute the flesh as part of something more. Which still among somaticists goes by different names and it's conceived of in different ways. So that it still finds a great home at Esselen. We have people doing body work. Now, this work, this name body work, you know, usually not always involves touching. Someone touching someone else. But people don't realize the ways, the diversity, the varieties of touching. So, for example, there are people who massage the aura, which might have appealed to many Victorians. You don't have to take your clothes off. You can just massage your aura. And you could say it's a spectrum all the way over to what you could call very deep Rolfie Ida Rolf style in which you go in so deep that you have people, being Rolf, screaming for help. It's painful. And then there's within the rolfing community, there are degrees of pain you should or should not inflict on your client. And there have been a great number of critiques on this. And Estlin often had to be in the business of deconstructing some of these practices and actually advising people never to do them again, to stop it, because it has gone too far. For example, Ida Rolf had a dictum that the spine should be curved in a certain way. This is back in 1965. So people, uh, so you needed to get that spine in this right curvature. Well, a lot of cracking and bending, and I shouldn't be laughing, but uh, it's uh, it was a lot of whooping and wailing. It was dysfunctional, okay? And Don Johnson wrote a very famous essay starting the deconstruction of Rolfing, which he calls somatic Platonism. It's that Ida's idea, when it, in the beginning of her practice, was that they, there is like a perfect form, and maybe you could see it in these beautiful Greek statues, or wherever, you know, this ideal form. And it's like, well, okay. It turns out more and more that we're each born with a certain spine, and you've got to learn to dance, with that spine. You've got to learn to dance with, you know, (laughs) who who came to the party with you. So there's all sorts of modulations on that. I'm just choosing that as one example of the process through which most transformative practices have had to go in the uh, larger laboratory, which was not given to us by any university, but by the culture itself, a large culture of practicing people trying all sorts of things out. So in these practices that have come to comprise the world of somatics, we're learning as we go. So, okay, this is still underway now. Now, leaping way ahead real fast here, many practices at Esalen have gone through a period of purgation and now return into the field of play. You know, we only have so much time for this conversation today, but let's just take one for example one general field of transformative practice to do with psychedelics and ask you that thank
1: you you went right there huh yeah what is your, what is your hit on the current Renaissance of uh, the psychedelics and and what's going on now
3: we've been through Esla's been in the middle of every stage of this a lot of it out of sight of general culture okay all right it It was with us from day one at Esalen, when we started. If we were to go back and talk about how it started, Aldous Huxley was an important influence on Dick Price and I. He helped give us a kind of language, a mediating language, between the highfalutin metaphysics I inherited through Sri Aurobindo. And... Later, my reading of Fichte and Schelling and Hegel and everything. And, well, you know, we couldn't have launched talking about, you know, the third stage of the spirit in a Hegelian sense or the descent of the supermind, the way our binder talked. to talk but with Aldous Huxley. The language of human potentialities and much else, and what he called the nonverbal humanities, that was became part of our language in the early 60s and led to our work with the Ford Foundation and much else. But he also, through him and the other primary people at Esalen then, and through the culture as it was emerging, psychedelics was front and center. So to make a long story short, the culture got drunk by the time the Summer of Love 67 and Tim Leary saying you should have LSD every Sunday. And as psychedelics exploded in influence in the late 60s, we were already feeling the ebb tide coming back. This wasn't all working. There were disasters, and the culture lived through that. The media, you know, raked us all over the coals, starting in the late 60s. And the Drug Enforcement Agency, now, we made our peace with the DEA very early. We never got into trouble because we let everybody know. I mean, what kept us safe from the law was it started with my family and my father and all, and, you know, our friendship with the sheriff, et cetera, et cetera. But it was our being straight, telling people what's what and when things got out of control, with the excess of these, all these drugs, we didn't, you know, we, we owned up to it, but uh, gradually it all cooled down. And then in the culture at large, and certainly at Esalen and places like that, it got essentially put way back on the back burner. It came out of the foreground and went onto the back burner, but it still was happening in different ways. So we were part of a pretty quiet effort, Primarily in the 90s, we had about seven or eight meetings down at Essel and were never publicized with the folks who today are front and center through various organizations now in the return of psychedelics, hopefully in a more sober, sophisticated way, owning the downside, the, the immensity of its shadow side, let's put it. So now with these projects at Columbia and Johns Hopkins and elsewhere, ESLIN now has a co-sponsorship running with the Harvard Divinity School through one of our new board members who's rising to real active leadership at ESLIN, Charlie Stang who's a professor at Harvard and head of a center within the Harvard Divinity School called the Center for Global Spirituality. And so he's now emerging as an important player at Esalen. So this is a series of programs to look at the cultural and the well, all the dimensions of the psychedelic movement, holding awareness of the disasters of the late 60s and through the 70s of psychedelics. So you've seen, I would characterize it as a kind of spiral up through the rise, fall, and rise again. And that in psychedelics is at play also, that same spiraling up in various other practices.
2: Mike, could I just distill some of what you've said here? Because it seems like this is such an important, you've identified such an important Process that seems to occur with so many therapies of one kind or another, and I'm with my medical background. I'm thinking of the introduce introduction of different different pharmacological therapies, and it's always an exploration. And you're talking about trying to find out what works and what are the problems with the multiple growth processes. I'm hearing echoes here of a general process that as different new drugs are introduced, there's initially they're introduced and there's a kind of so-called panacea phase. Oh, they're wonderful, they work, they do all this right. stuff. <laughs> and then there's the backlash. Oh, wait on, oh, it has this problem can cause that complication. Right. And then there needs to be an integration. Okay, what works for what person under what circumstances, and at right. what time, and with what precautions. And yeah. it sounds like you have gone through that process, just as medicine goes through process with new, a new pharmacology. You've gone through that process with, right. with growth disciplines, and in this case, with psychedelics.
3: Right, you're right. Okay, just, I think we let ourselves right here, Roger, bounce around a little. I mean, we've got a good solid beat going with our <laughs> jazz band here. Okay. So right into this comes Tanya Lurman. You know, I, I don't know if you're aware of her work at Stanford. Boy, four or five books. And she's become quite critical of the unwarranted hegemony of, of, of what she calls a kind of modern Buddhist influence on meditation research. Esalen, again, has been very involved in meditation research and through biofeedback in in various ways. A lot of historic advance has been encouraged by, say, the Mind and Life Society, Richie Davidson, etc. But her critique is that it's all good, but it represents just a thin slice of the world's history with contemplative transformative yogic shamanic practice particularly the kinds of practices she has studied. She got her PhD at, in Cambridge, in England, and she studied a witch's coven. She joined it. She's written about it, and then she's done an amazing amount of research in evangelical Christian communities in the U.S. And boy, I recommend her work. I tell you, William James and Abe Maslow and others would be celebrating her all over the place. And she's particularly looked at the role of imagination and the mobilization of what she would say, the whole person in a way that doesn't always happen in the kind of bare awareness training and mindfulness training that's become so popular and so useful and so good as part of this waking up of the culture to the greater dimensions of our nature. They have relied on these classical ways in, but there are other ways in. So she she isn't driven primarily out of a revolutionary spirit, but her the way she has gone after things gives her a lot of originality. For example, Roger, I um <laughs> was led by this one of her books on the cares, a study of the vineyard people who are. Ecstatic, often ecstatic, evangelical Christians. They can, if some of these communities cut across particular, you know, denominations, whether Presbyterian or Methodist or Episcopalian, even, even into some Catholics. In any case, the vineyard people learn how to have a love affair with Jesus. So, you know, <laughs> if you read it, it's pretty erotic and it produces. For example, psychosomatic changes, women, for example, who have a a ring emerge because they're married to Jesus, uh, it's a stigmatic ring. And, you know, I've written about this in my, you know, The Future of the Body, about the ubiquity of the psychosomatic element in religious practice. Now, the Catholics made this, well, uh, more than anyone, I would say, in certainly in the West, that you know, Saint Francis with the wounds of Christ, and these uh, and, and nuns who are married to Jesus, and this ring appears. Well, anyway, this and many other so-called charisms in the Catholic Church, psychosomatic changes produced in the body, she has shown, and then exist in these communities, and also these ravishing love affairs, ecstatic love affairs, which are have more or less gone away. From the catholic monasteries and from mainstream protestantism appearing in these communities which to say my friends who typically went to colleges and also an awful lot of them to elite colleges and who have perfected the arts of snobbery when it comes to uh, <laughs> spiritual status systems i mean they have mastered this and look down on these charismatics and Pentecostals and etc. Well, this is where Tanya has gone. So now we are quite involved with her, and she is now looking at the uniqueness of the folks who come to Esalen. Now, I had never thought of this, that you could study them as different than others. <laughs> so we had our first seminar a month ago with two of her postdocs and working with Pam Kramer, who is head of our ITP community. Those who signed up came down and they to learn how this research is done, and each of them gets a case study. And the case study is themselves. So now you administer the tests that Tanya's team uses, and she she does both the physical tests, you know, lead-ins to heart rate and all of this stuff that, you know, in the mainstream meditation research, of, but also back to good old paper and pencil t- tests like the MMPI. And, but these are her own, the Telogen absorption scale. Did you ever use that, Roger?
2: I
0: never used it. I know all of it, of course.
3: Yeah, the Telogen. And it opens up at this, the differences of, you know, so-called evolutionary psychologists. You know, I don't know how you hold that field in regard these days. Roger, but in any case, I I do think they've come up with a lot of good stuff. But apparently, there is a, a genetic predisposition to absorption, the capacity to be completely absorbed in what's at hand. And so she's shown that this thing which you come into a practice with determines your success or not with the practice. Now, you know, more people than people... It's not generally known how many people are unable to go to a movie because they... It carries them too deeply into places they're just unwilling to go. I wrote about this in The Future of the Body. So this and this capacity for absorption also affects people's lives in all sorts of ways. Some people just surrender in. And let's say there's a tough stuff in a movie and they leave the movie. They just get up and leave. Or afterwards, they suffer the consequences of that movie. Okay. And the movie industry, unbeknownst to most of us, plays to this. It plays to this. I was involved tangentially with a movie that was made at Esalen, not by Esalen. We just This was 1964. And this was Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. And for us, it was a lot of fun. And The Sandpiper. I don't know if he, you guys are too young for But anyways, way back. I remember the, that. I was thinking about that the other day. Powerful film. You, re, this, you remember that? I do, yeah. Oh, for God's sake. Well, anyway, they fixed up a big boulder down in front of the baths and that's where they did their love scene, you know, Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton and all of us. Oh, we had a great old time. Fritz Perls and I actually were trying to shoulder each other aside one night trying to serve Elizabeth Taylor down there. It was fun. Anyway, so I bring in that because this capacity for absorption is a real differentiator and Anyway, so back to what studying the Esselen tribe.
1: Can I can I ask you a question, Michael? With yeah, so you're saying that people that are predisposed to this this capacity of absorption does that mean mystical absorption? In other words, the people who are able to get the pantheistic experience and vision?
3: Well, yes, it say everything. Novel reading, how hmm. as a writer, I published four novels, and what grips people and what doesn't, and you learn about this stuff in. In courses on literature at Stanford, you know, you can take writing courses and what works, what doesn't, why Why does Jane Austen remain so popular? I mean, from this, what she writes about for all these hundreds of years, it's interesting. Okay, this absorption thing is part of it. So she's studying it. It's worth taking this test. You know, there's 30 questions. But again, we went through a period at Esalen where we looked down on these paper and pencil tests. And we were part of a a revolutionary impulse against the tyranny of mainstream psychiatry that had afflicted my partner, Dick Price, who had been, in his ecstatic openings occurred in not a good place, the Air Force, the Naval, and he was put in the brig. And he was let out because his father was uh, close friends with the Secretary of War, Stuart Symington. His father was the the boss at Sears Roebuck. This is way back in the 50s. And Dick, too, the deal was made that he would get an honorable discharge if, for all his ecstatic states and carryings on, uh, he could get over that. They put him in the Institute for the Living where John Nash was, you know that movie, A Beautiful Mind. Anyway, there was Dick. and Anyway, Dick got out, but after 67 insulin shock treatments. Okay, so he... He came into this on that front, and he opened up a a whole line of stuff we did. It's not generally known, where we um, co-sponsored with the National Institutes of Health and the California Department of Mental Hygiene, a special clinic at Agnew's Hospital for psychotic people who had psychotic breaks that were transparently, ecstatically religious, that had enough flavor in them so they could be in this special ward. I don't I don't want to get all into this now because uh, I'm being very conscious now of my tendency to digress and I'm trying to be better behaved right now. So to keep this on course right now, this reaction against so much psychiatry and research psychology led a lot of the field to discard some very good instruments and Tanya is bringing some of this back. Another capacity, for example, besides the capacity for absorption, which obviously someone like Ramakrishna, you know, we have an amazing close-up of a stupendous mystic. He had such capacity. I mean, it started, as it does with many of these, in their childhood. And he would just see certain statues and fall in love with Kali or whatever one, Lakshmi or whatever. So he had the absorption. But another attribute that she's been studying, which she's actually given a particular name to it, she calls it
2: porosity.
3: And I, Roger, have you followed her work at all?
2: A little bit, but I'm also learning. So okay. So yeah, she's been very creative. And she actually wrote a study on the uh, the sociology anthropology of psychiatry training. So that's right. Yeah. Her
3: father was a psychiatrist. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So anyway, she took the word porous from Charles Taylor, the great philosopher. You know, he's really a wonderful philosopher, Charles Taylor. And porosity is an attribute that involves both the sensory and extrasensory domains. In other words, some people are very aware of thoughts that clearly come from outside their being, as it were. And this was a giant item for us in the Aurobindo Ashram. I spent a year and a half in India at the Aurobindo Ashram. And they kind of specialized in porosity over there, being Indian. And the mother, the teacher at that ashram was very front and center that you had to balance this capacity with sufficient ego strength, balance, discrimination, stability, samatha, calm, etc. So, you know, I was very aware of this when Esalen started. You had to do this. But anyway, Tanya's taken this abroad, so to speak. This recognition, thats there in William James, Abraham Maslow, and everyone else, but it makes it more, brings it more into a research paradigm, and I feel contributes to our understanding of it. Well, in any case, a month ago, we had this thing at Esalen with two of her postdoctoral ones, one of whom now is a professor in Montreal. He's at McGill University. The other one teaches part-time classes at San Jose State and elsewhere. He kind of is making a life as a freelancer. Well, anyway, in any case, so that now we're down at Esalen, looking at people who tend to come to Esalen. And are they like other people? So I find this an extremely interesting question.
2: Well, if they are when they go, they're not when they come back. (laughs) So what have you found?
3: Well, okay, first of all, this is just starting. And I'm just by way of saying we're going to go forward on this front more of finding more sophisticated ways to bring together these research sophisticated research with what's going on down there and kind of set an example because it's a lot of fun for most people to come to Essen to become now either a researcher studying themselves well now they've been the whole tendency already is to study yourself some of them are Do it way too much. But I mean, you know, it it leads to a kind of self consciousness that, you know, you have to learn to balance that too. But in any case, right now it's hot. I'm not afraid of Esalen being hot because it'll cool off eventually. These things come in and out of fashion. If you're going to play in this world, you got to have enough tolerance of ambiguity, comforting chaos. To go after it, knowing that you can keep it safe. What Fritz Pearl's called a safe emergencies happened. Because we've learned through the years, and I think this instinct has survived down there at Esslin to give people room to try things out, to see there are more options, to see that there are more dimensions in their life that than even their guru knew, you know, because everyone's had at least one guru. You don't get I it out to dinner in Marin County without having a headless three or four gurus. I mean, you know, you and having been roped by a number of people. I mean, it's it, it's become a status item in certain communities. It really has been. But nevertheless, we contribute to, you know, cater to the delinquency of adults by <laughs> opening doors to these various practices.
0: Stay with us for part two of the dialogue with the unique Michael Murphy, in which he goes even further into the farther reaches of human possibilities.
1: Today's episode was brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up, as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation Podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.